Hello, I'm Dr. Michelle Buckley from Iowa State University's College of Veterinary Medicine. Thanks so much for joining us on Boz and Bleats, sponsored by the American Association of Small Ruminant Practitioners. Just a quick note before we get started, this work is also supported by the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture Agricultural and Food Research Initiative Competitive Program Antimicrobial Resistance Grant Number 2020-04197, which funds my research on improving antibiotic stewardship in dairy goats to assure food safety and milk quality. As always, if you have any questions about any of our episodes, please email them to dairygoatextension at iastate.edu. I hope you enjoy today's show. Thanks for joining us today on season one of Boz and Bleats, the American Association of Small Ruminant Practitioners podcast. This season, we're focusing on improving milk quality and food safety in dairy goats. Today's guests are Dr. Joan Dean Rao of the University of California, Davis, and Dr. Roselle Bush, sheep and goat veterinary extension specialist for University of California's Department of Agriculture and Natural Resources. Today's topic is setting up for success, and we're going to be talking about keeping udders healthy during the dry period. Let's start off with some introductions. Dr. Bush, you're new to the podcast, so can you give us a little bit of background on your involvement with dairy goats and your career? Yeah, so I, as you said, am the sheep and goat extension specialist. I actually work at the School of Vet Med, but I have a statewide position through UCANR, and it's been amazing. I've been doing this for three years now. Um, before that, I worked with CDFA for two years, starting their antimicrobial use and stewardship program with a great team. And then prior to that, I've worked at UC Davis in our livestock medicine and surgery service. So did internal medicine, a lot of um, great individual animal medicine with production animals, as well as companion um, livestock. And um, yeah, so I've been working with livestock for over 10 years. Awesome. Well, welcome to the show. Dr. Rao, you were here on our second episode that we called, If You Can't Measure It, You Can't Manage It. So I'm sure our listeners are already familiar with you, but maybe you could just refresh our memory with a little bit of background information. So just very briefly, um, my name is Joan Dean Rao. And I'm a veterinarian, now a professor emeritus at University of California, Davis, after retiring with after a 30 plus year career in livestock um, herd health and reproduction, where I work with all the livestock species. But as uh, most of you who know me know, I have a real special love for dairy goats and a lifelong interest in dairy goat health. I also breed Toggenberg dairy goats. All right. So to get started, we're going to start with the basics. Um, And I just want to talk about what a normal goat's lactation looks like and um, how much variation is there. Obviously, there has to be some with the wide range of breeds that we see here um, in the U.S. and internationally. Um, So Dr. Rao, can you kind of give us a broad picture of that maybe? So just very briefly, 
the um, I guess the first thing would be to appreciate that the natural tendency for the goat would be to be a seasonally um, uh, to have a seasonal of estrus. So the natural kidding period would be more in the spring months in our hemisphere. And then uh, the highest proportion of does would be dry then in the winter months. And many dairies have schemes to um, manipulate the reproduction to have year-round milk supply and year-round kidding. But um, we have not just the lactation curve, but then also the seasonality of reproduction that layers onto how we manage dairy animals and kind of the expected um, periods of low production or dry periods. Within the individual goat, again, there's going to be a lot of variation, more based on as much management as breed, but the typical goat lactation, we can use sort of the standardized um, 10-month lactation, two-month dry period with an annual cycle of kidding. Um, appreciate that, uh, and many dairies, there's selection for um, extended lactation so that a doe may stay in lactation for more than one year um, until her successive kidding. And that would be through selection of those animals that have the um, persistence of lactation to be able to, to do that. And the, 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 the annualized curve would be you know, very similar to the dairy cow in that there's a peak um, again, it varies on breed and management, but a peak maybe six weeks after kidding and then a gradual decline. And where there's been less intensive selection for production, then we might see a more precipitous decline or a, a, a steeper curve or steeper reduction in, in production. And that presents some challenges in keeping those does in year-round milk. And it's really interesting. There's, I kind of went down a bit of a rabbit hole <laughs> when reading this. And um, Dr. Mangini had shared some of their lactation curves that because they do daily milk weights. Um, and just seeing the variation of those peaks and the slopes of those peaks, even on one farm that has the same management, is really interesting. And it, it poses a challenge for management, especially with nutritional management, when if you're feeding everyone for peak lactation, then you may get some overconditioning of does and the more metabolic disorders. And so it was really interesting in Europe, they seem to be going towards more individual precision nutrition, where with daily milk weights, they have these collars where they go into these feeders and they're given the right quantity of feed for their milk production at that time. So it's interesting that there is some research going into that on European dairies, but those dairies are so different from ours. And so that research is really challenging to, and even their nutrition, like the feeds that they're using are so different, but it is interesting that that work's being done. Um, but yeah, it just shows that the, I don't know, the variation of lactation uh, curves is not only challenging for your milk supply, but it also impacts your nutrition management, your input and all of that. So yeah, it's kind of a neat tangent to go down. No, absolutely. I think that's important to note because I think most farms will group their does by where they're at in lactation with the expectation that they're all gonna peak around the same point in their lactation. Um, and so, you know, backing up into like feeding them the same um, and expecting that that's an appropriate 
assumption, but um, I think it's important to realize that that's not necessarily the case. And so um, tracking those daily milk weights can be incredibly helpful, and that might help some farms to rearrange the way that they're housing their animals and feeding them. Um, that's a great point to bring to light. So I appreciate that rabbit hole. I'm sure a lot of listeners will too. I would add one comment, and that would be that even on farms who are unable to have daily uh, milk weights and real-time management, that um, even the monthly weights that one can get from a standard dairy herd improvement testing system, or even less frequently, obviously the more frequent, the better the quality of the information, but that information is really key to managing all elements of production and that, uh, again, even your monthly weights are still going to give you a lot of useful information. Absolutely. And I know we talked about that more on our uh, previous episode, Dr. Rao. So if listeners haven't heard that one, they need to make sure they go back and take a listen. Um, but today, like I said, we're focusing on uh, dry period um, udder health. So I really want to go back and talk about, um, you mentioned that some does or some farms will elect to do like a long, uh, an extended lactation versus sticking with the standard 10 months milking and two months dry. So can we talk a little bit more about how producers might decide when to dry a dough off? Okay, so um, it will depend basically on two things, reproductive status and production. And it all starts with reproduction. So um, the decision to breed a dough or not is the one that you would make in trying to determine if you want her to have an extended lactation and to milk for more than one year. And that would be based on your knowledge of her production and whether it looks like her lactation curve will carry her through an extended lactation. In um, the reproductive status, once I try to decide to breed her, I need to know she's pregnant and know exactly what her next kidding date will be then in order to be able to prescribe a dry period for her, which would be customarily approximately 60 days. Um, uh, we know from uh, dairy cattle that a shorter um, period can be achieved, but um, as we get uh, too short, then we'll have some lost um, production and subsequent lactations. So, so the knowledge, exact knowledge of her reproductive status, both in deciding to breed her for extent, whether we want to breed her or not, and then second, to know her due date and confirm her pregnancy date so that I can give her an accurate dry period. Yeah, and I so I think there's going to be some different reasons, like Dr. Al mentioned, for reproductive reasons. For So you have some producers who are high genetic merit and are breeding annually for kid production so that they can sell high genetic value offspring. Um, so they're more likely to want to breed every year and dry off on that more annual cycle. Um, when you have, you know, commercial dairies that are push, wanting to do more persistent lactations, they're going to, rather than having everyone try to have, you know, the same length of lactation and everyone dry off and kid at the same time, they're going to want to stagger those so that their kidding facilities are kind of less impacted. They're not all kidding at the same time. That's one of the neat benefits because kidding takes a lot of labor. Um, so it, it's, you know, kind of having an idea of ideally who you would be kind of drying off in what sequence, but then again, what her milk production is versus her feed intake, those sort of things might play in. 
Um, I remember talking with Dr. Montini about how you might have a goat that, you know, is only producing six to eight pounds, but she's been at that level persistently and, you know, has been very healthy. That may be one that you'll keep in lactation, but again, you have to plan ahead. So I think there's a lot of different factors that'll go into play for who is going to be dried off. And there's probably also other health factors. So if she has been struggling with mastitis, um, that may be one that you might decide to breed um, and give her a dry period to recover. Yeah, I do know that there's um, a farm here in Iowa where, and I'm sure plenty of dairies do this, but they dry their does off in early November and um, into December to avoid having to milk during the holidays. <laughs> yeah, see, all kinds of reasons. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I guess the point is, as um, has been the case a lot on this podcast, it really depends on your specific farm, but um, these are some things to consider um, when we're talking about having a dry period. Um, I do want to talk about why it's important to give does a dry period or any milking animal, really a dry period between um, lactation and then having a kid, because there's a lot of really important physiologic and even um, microbiological reasons um, and changes that are happening in that udder during the dry period. So Dr. Rao, do you think you could um, start us off with that discussion? Sure. So um, the I see the dry period actually as the beginning of the next lactation. And so the involution of the udder or as the um, alveoli or the milk secreting units in the udder then um, uh, atrophy and then are replaced by new cellular development as she um, develops the udder at, with the start of the oncoming lactation largely the ductal system remains and the, the alveoli or the glandular secreting tissue then um, it really it, it is, a, is a new start for the next lactation. And so it's necessary then to achieve peak production um, for the subsequent lactation. So I think it's really important to think of the dry period as actually not the end of the last lactation, but the start of the new one. I just kind of looked into this a little bit before we talked, but how throughout lactation production depends on mammary epithelial cell turnover. So the rate of new cells differentiating and becoming lactating cells versus cell death. And that rate really slows down by the end of lactation. And so that's why we tend to get lower production. And then that dry period allows for those MECs to different, you get a higher population, you get more differentiation. So at the start of at freshening, you have all of those cells ready to go. Um, and it even angiogenesis occurs, you get new, just new blood capillary formation, and just more efficient nutrient exchange. And without the dry period, they've looked at this in goats, I actually found a paper on goats, which is amazing. Um, they've shown that you can get, it's really challenging to keep goats at the end of gestation continuously lactating, but they, you can do it and you can get, you get, you do get production losses in the, ne in the next lactation, but it's not as severe as what you would see with cattle. 
Um, so because they do, they do still have cell turnover, they do still have blood capillaries. But I think if we did that over and over and over again, that's where you would see, because the population of those mammary epithelial cells continue to decrease without that dry period, because you really need that kind of continual development of those cells. And then, yeah, it gives an opportunity for colostrum to develop. And we know that that really starts a couple weeks before kidding. And if we're continually um, milking or <laughs> we have the dough in continuous lactation while she's trying to develop and concentrate all those antibodies and white cells and all that important um, nutrients, all of that good stuff for the new kids, then we kind of dilute that. Um, we don't get as great production of colostrum as we should. Um, and I know that that probably has different impacts on different farms, depending on what, like in your last podcast you recorded, what type of nutrients and colostrum that they're feeding to newborn kids. Um, but again, so there are production impacts and it will also impact the quality of the colostrum. So we're kind of uh, closing the floodgates for a little while to allow the really good stuff to um, to accumulate in the udder. And then when we start milking them again after freshening, we're opening the floodgates and that really um, nutritious colostrum can come on out. Um, one thing that I do think is also important to touch on is um, the natural immunity of the udder during the dry period. Um, and I just... I'm wrapping up a, a dry cow project um, where I had to really look into this. Um, but there's naturally a keratin plug that forms inside the end of the udder or the end of the teat um, once um, lactation has stopped. Um, and in some, in cattle anyway, um, which is really most of the data that we have to go off of, but how long it takes for that plug to form can vary widely. It can be from a few days to um, most of the dry period. And so the point of that plug is to basically seal off the teat orifice, so preventing um, milk from getting out, but also preventing bacteria from getting in. Um, and kind of preserving um, the microbiome of the udder while it's going through that involution process. And so in animals that have a delayed onset of that keratin plug formation, um, those are when we can especially see um, intramammary infections that develop during the dry period. So um, part of what we want to talk about today is um, mitigating those infections that can develop during the dry period and also managing those that are present while we're um, drying animals off. Yeah, where I thought you were going on the keratin plug uh, comments was the importance of um, monitoring those does once they go into the dry lot, because for those with the slow plug formation, then you might want to be teat dipping those and continuing to monitor the utter health by palpation. And for, um, and, and, as we talk about um, infusing the udder, how it, the trade-off between uh, having a, a, an antibiotic in the udder versus disrupting the street canal and potentially the keratin, the natural house defenses like the keratin plug by our infusion. We would assume that we're disrupting, if we disrupt, especially a full, full insertion of a mastitis treatment tube, for example, 
um, partial insertion will help disrupt the uh, avoid disrupting the street canal. But I, I would assume that either anything that both either disrupts the street canal or where you have excessive intramammary pressure, such as a doe that's bagging up um, as, as we try to turn her dry, that, that those would both compromise the host, you know, would dis, it would impair her ability to, um, to, to keep out bacteria. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And like I said, there, we need a lot more data on this and, and to look into it a lot further. But um, yeah, that keratin plug can be affected by a lot of, a lot of aspects. So another thing that I found while I was doing some research from this podcast was um, just looking into why we've started utilizing um, dry cow treatments in the, the bovine dairy industry um, and to just kind of try and extrapolate that into the goat industry. Um, and so back in the 60s, um, there was a five-point plan that was developed, and you can read about this on the National Mastitis Council's website um, if you're curious. But basically, the goal was to improve milk quality in the American uh, dairy cow herd. And so the five points were to document and treat clinical cases. Um, Post-milking teat dip was really important and not being universally utilized. Um, dry cow treatment at dry off was a part of that. Um, call problem animals and then perform regular milking equipment maintenance, which Dr. Rao has talked about with us on the previous episode as well. But um, just making sure that we're, you know, cleaning and sanitizing after every milking, replacing parts as necessary, um, which Dr. Mangini talked about in her somatic cell count episode. Um, so all of that regular stuff really contributes to udder health and overall milk quality. So one thing that I wanted to look at when I was preparing for this podcast on top of um, that five-point plan was um, what changes have we seen in the bovine dairy industry since implementing dry cow therapy? And obviously there's been a lot of changes in the dairy industry um, since the 1960s, and we can't possibly attribute them all to implementing um, dry therapy uh, treatment. But um, <clears throat> I do think it's safe to think to say that this five-point plan has contributed a lot to um, the decrease in severe contagious mastitis pathogens that we find in our herd now, like Staph aureus and Strep agalactia um, in cattle. Um, we've also significantly increased our milk yield for um, the bovine dairy industry per cow. Um, the annual average in the 1960s was uh, about almost 38,000 pounds of milk. Um, in the 2010s, that average jumped to 101, almost 102,000 pounds of milk. So um, we're seeing significant improvement in the amount of milk. Um, that's according to the FAO stat um, database that you can, you can find all of that information. You can also find on the NASS website um, that we've seen significant decreases in the somatic cell count of the American dairy herd um, over the same course of time. So I'm sure that's not all attributable to dry cow therapy, but um, all of these five steps that we've been taking to improve milk quality in cattle um, definitely appear to have been paying off um, and I think our goal with this podcast and with the research project that Dr. Bush and I are working on um, is to emulate that in the dairy goat industry. 
Yeah, I think one of the big challenges and differences, maybe not total difference, but <laughs> I think one of the challenges is that we do have a lot of, con or not, we have contagious pathogens that don't respond to antibiotics like Staph aureus and mycoplasma. And I know Dr. Rao wanted to talk a little bit about those. Um, but I think the value of what we're doing with the research that we'll talk about a little bit more is to look at those subclinical mastitis pathogens and how these dry therapy um, procedures may help improve milk quality, milk production, um, since it is, you know, they're not clinically affected. And even with our contagious mastitis, it's these those persist in the herd without severe clinical signs. So they're they're really challenging to identify. And so dry therapy is one thing to look at for improving milk quality and milk production, but it's certainly not the full picture. Um, well, actually, I think you um, remarked on it very well in that uh, if, we, if we're just talking about dry therapy, that there's a category of incurable infections that require a completely different approach. And so relating back to Dr. Buckley relative to the five point, that um, culture and identification of the organisms you're dealing with, teat dipping, in, in this case, I'll throw pre and post dipping uh, in that the, I think when that plan was made, the pre-dipping was less um, known as a strategy for environmentals, but um, the teat dipping, the utter hygiene, the diagnosis, all those things and culling that um, I think both of you said it really well that, um, that, that, but, but to recognize the importance of chronic staph aureus and the importance of mycoplasma, especially mycoplasma mycoides caffrey in, um, as an endemic uh, organism in the herds, and, and that's not addressed by dry treatment. Absolutely. I just don't think that we can overstate the importance of culturing, um, especially those that have chronic issues with mastitis. Um, and even doing bulk take uh, samples, which Dr. Mangini talks about in her episode. Um, and so we can identify if we do have one of those contagious pathogens in the herd and um, start utilizing all five points um, of that that plan to eliminate the issue. So we do need to be calling problem does um, if they're shedding staph aureus into our bulk tank and spreading it to everyone else in the herd. Um, we need to be aware that that's a problem and who has been affected and make sure that we're keeping them separate from those that are not affected so that we can work towards a, a staph aureus free herd. Same with mycoplasma because bacteria or antibiotics, like you said, are just they're not going to cure that problem. Um, I was wondering if we could hone in a little bit um, for the sake of discussion on what the different strategies are for um, dry period intervention. So um, if we're going to use antimicrobials versus not use them and, or maybe using them um, in a selective manner, um, and maybe we could touch just briefly on pros and cons of why we may or may not want to utilize that program on any specific operation. Yeah, so the main, I think historically the um, main strategy that was promoted, especially in dairy cows with blanket antimicrobial therapy, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. One was a lot of, we didn't know, so you kind of mentioned with dry therapy, we could be addressing current infections in the udder that we want to resolve prior to the next lactation. 
or we could also be preventing new infections within that dry period for an udder that might be predisposed to getting infections. Um, so that blanket dry therapy was meant to cover all of those bases. Um, and for management reasons, I think for folks that weren't doing any kind of intervention before, this was probably a more practical approach. Um, now, in, especially in dairy cattle, there's more research looking at how we can identify animals that either have current infections at dry off or who might be more susceptible to new infections that would be identified in the next lactation. So there are algorithms, there, there's the kind of the, the culture and treat strategy for selective dry therapy, and then there's even more complicated algorithms that are looking at um, milk weights, uh, somatic cell counts, all kinds of um, udder scores, like there's all kinds of things being done in dairy cows, and I don't think we have a gold standard for it yet, but there are a lot of dairies practicing culture-based dry treatments. Um, and so if, there's a lot of opportunities for kind of investigating that area and learning what, which animals would benefit from antimicrobial therapy at dry off. Um, but yeah, without knowing that, if there seems to be the, a great risk of in current infections or new infections, that's where the blanket dry therapy fits pretty well. The way that I've been looking at it as I kind of dive into this is that we've seen such an improvement in milk quality on the bovine side since we implemented blanket dry therapy. And now we can kind of back off a little bit and say, okay, we've mitigated a lot of these problems. So um, maybe we can be specialized. And of course, we you know, our judicious use of antimicrobials is always in, important in front of mind um, on farm and as veterinarians. Um, so I think that's a tough thing to balance with just having so far to go with milk quality. In general. It's really interesting when you look at judicious use principles, intramammary therapy is really great as far, just kind of in general, as you're looking at all antimicrobial use because it's localized infusion of antibiotics to the site that's either infected or has a high risk of infection. So just starting with that, I think it's a great place to start. And then to become even more strategic about our approach to administering antimicrobials is great with kind of ev evidence-based information that we can get for making those decisions. I think that um, both of you made really good points about that, that kind of decision and precision, um, I kind of wanted to take uh, the 10,000 foot view and remind everyone that, um, you know, hopefully through some of this work, maybe more medications will become labeled for goats, but that um, even whether it's blanket or selective, we're really in extra label use of medications. And that comes with a certain set of requirements in both record keeping diagnosis and monitoring in order to be able to prescribe these treatments, um, which involves our knowledge of the herd and the organisms that are in the herd. Um, even, even if we don't have the individual animal data for each animal we're treating, especially in a, in a blanket situation or just a high somatic cell count situation. And that, um, um, that, that in, for example, with the, with a blanket treatment, then it's, you know, no goat left behind. So 
you you know that everyone's getting the treatment and that everyone's being treated the same. So you know that that management is being applied uniformly. And so that's an advantage. The um, disadvantage comes back on the reproduction end if I go to boards or she's really not due when I assumed she was due without having reproductive ultrasound backup or other knowledge of her true reproductive status, then that um, in addition to the increased cost of medication, um, I'm adding risk in terms of residue if I don't have a perfect understanding of a reproductive status and end up with a residue because she kitted earlier than expected or aborted and so on. And, um, and then further along those lines, our world has changed relative to our concerns about antimicrobial resistance in a broader sense, not just in the farm for this organism, where as Rosie said, this is very kind of precise, it's local, it's at a very prescribed point of time, um, and so on. So that's, that's quite favorable. But, you know, our world has changed relative to our awareness of the total use of antimicrobials and how judiciously then to to, um, to parse those out. So that favors the selective approach. And the selective approach, again, requires a great deal of management, identification, records, diagnosis, in order to know which animals to target to both reduce cost and reduce risk of residue. There's some really intensive management involved in selective dry therapies. Um, and I think one of the biggest challenges for that on the front end is that a lot of producers just don't have the resources to be able to accomplish that. Um, whether you're going to be doing um, somatic cell counts on your animals and utilizing that as your indicator of whether to treat, or if you're going to be culturing everyone, those are pretty labor and cost intensive, potentially, um, especially if these animals need to be, you know, financially earning, you know, earning their keep. Um, it's hard to factor those expenses in on top of just, you know, feed costs and general maintenance and stuff like that. I'll just add, I, antibiotics of the tubes are not cheap either. So if you've been getting along without doing any dry therapy at all, you're really going to want to know that there would be a benefit to implementing either blanket therapy, which is more costly, and then selective therapy, which is less costly from an antibiotic point of view, but probably more costly from a labor and management point of view. So yeah, I think there's, you, you want to, I think that's where this project has a lot of value is showing if there is a benefit to milk quality and milk production with the implementation of these strategies. And I think Dr. Mangini in, in her somatic cell counts episode gave us some great tools for potentially identifying high risk does that would benefit from antibiotic treatment, utilizing that California mastitis test um, and that algorithm that she presented in that episode could be a, a less expensive way for producers to start implementing um, a selective type program. No, I, I agree that it's, you know, it, it, you may not have individual animal culture data, but hopefully you have herd culture data so you can predict the most likely organisms. And so you do need culture data, at least on the herd, so you know who the who the familiar faces are that you might be you that you might be dealing with. And really, it comes back to having data on those animals, um, on those metrics before we get to the dry period. We really need to be tracking that throughout the whole lactation to understand if there's been a deviation 
um, that could indicate an infection or if it's just increased kind of along a, a natural or normal curve that um, that is just indicative of, you know, being ready to dry off. And I, I feel bad drawing parallels between the bovine industry because the goat industry, dairy industry is just so different in so many ways. But sometimes we kind of have to utilize the data that we have in front of us. And this is, you know, the closest thing that we have. But I recently finished up a, a project working on dry cows um, and dry cow treatments. Um, and in reviewing the data for that, um, I saw that, you know, project, similar projects have identified cure rates of up to 90 to 95% um, when using blanket dry cow therapy um, and similar for targeted therapy, I believe. And then as far as um, new infection rates, so we talked about we're hoping to cure existing infections, but then also prevent new infections. Um, and so we can see new infection rates of 20 to 30% in some of these studies that appeared to be bacteria that were, should have been hypothetically um, susceptible to the antimicrobials that had been used for the dry treatment. So um, can either of you comment on um, cure rates or new infection rates that you've seen or heard about in goat um, dairies that are utilizing dry or dry off therapies? Yeah, I, I don't have um, specific information on cure rates. But what I would say is that uh, knowledge of what kind of organism you're dealing with would be really important in interpreting those. So it's probably likely to vary a lot farm to farm. So, for example, um, a superficial infection with a duck-dwelling organism would be likely to have a relatively, with a susceptible bug, would be likely to have a high cure rate. And uh, conversely, chronic infections with staphylococcal organisms, either the staph aureus or the not coag negative staphs, which can result in very high somatic cell counts, um, would be less likely to have a cure, uh, a high rate of cure. And so, um, the, you know, they 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 invade the parenchyma. They're so even if they're susceptible to the antibiotic, the antibiotic may not necessarily get to the site of the infection. So I, I would. I think one has to be really cautious at interpreting data by knowing what's on your farm and then um, what what the what the when comparing that with published literature about re, uh, infection rates. Um, and also there I think there's something to be said for which drug we're utilizing because there are different options and Dr. Bush and I our project is evaluating two different um, dry cow uh, or dry off antimicrobials. So there's cloxacillin um, and then there's cefepirin. And so we may see some different um, effects based on which drug we're using on, um, on any given farm. It seems like people are either doing it or not. And so really without being able to look at kind of either the culture data or look at their, you know, before they implemented therapy or what was the reason for implementing therapy, it would be hard to kind of draw real conclusions from those or more like anecdotal. Um, and, you know, I think some folks wouldn't dare dry goats off without it. Um, but it seems like a majority aren't practicing dry therapy. Um, so, you know, I, I think we have so much to learn. 
Absolutely. And I mean, there are other ways that we can mitigate these health concerns, other health concerns during the dry period, right? So um, before we uh, started chat, before we started recording, we were talking about biosecurity. Um, and what were the other methods that you were talking about, Dr. Rao, for maintaining other health without necessarily having to um, infuse an antibiotic into the teats? Yeah, so um, a couple of things. And before I kind of pivot in that direction, I wanted to make one comment, and that is, and be sure that by administering a dry treatment, you don't initiate a new infection. And so the proper technique in infusion would be, would start with a um, a, a complete emptying of the gland. And then um, my preferred method is to teat dip and then dry off the teat dip and then prepare the teat end with the alcohol um, pledge that comes with the product and continue to clean that until you see no more color and no more debris. And then infuse the product um, without touching the tip and only by inserting it as far as needed to infuse the product. So a shallow insertion Again, not to dilate the teeth orifice any more than is needed in the street canal. And then to um, teat dip then afterward. And there are things like wearing a headlamp so that you can actually visualize with light the teat end while you're working and avoiding hair. And, um, you know, it's not uncommon for a doe to stomp her leg or so on and then recontaminate the teat end or potentially your tube. And so it's, um, again, this is, you, you have to be ready to discard a tube that's kicked out of the hand or in some way becomes contaminated, lest you um, initiate a new infection by an organism that's not, you know, that, that is a resistant environmental organism. So, so um, having that, that um, hard and fast rules about how you're going to handle contaminated tubes, how you're going to handle the teats. And then to get back to your point, um, once a doe is in the dry lot, um, monitoring those does either through running them through the barn and teat dipping until the udders, you know, become slack and palpating the udders, even just walking and being able to see uh, udder imbalances or, you know, asymmetry, um, swollen glands, uh, animal, being able to detect changes in during the dry period is really important. And it sounds very labor intensive, but it's really a matter of raising your awareness and taking a quick palpation where needed, and then managing those dose who are difficult to dry off. And I think your point about utter hygiene is really important. I would just only add that I've seen really bad gangrenous mastitis in those that had the wipes that came from a container and they were left in the barn and had dried out and they got no cardia mastitis. And, you know, because what we thought was disinfecting the udder wasn't and may have even been introducing infection. Um, so really, you know, like you mentioned, those wipes that come with, you know, individually or knowing that they're saturated with an antiseptic um, is really important. Yeah. And even, I mean, going so far back in that process as like cleanliness of the milker. So either clean hands or clean gloves, um, not putting the same pair of gloves on every day when you go into the milking parlor and even 
you know, if you, if you do choose to wear gloves when they get dirty, even during the same milking, making sure that those are thrown out and a new pair is put on, um, you just can't overstate the importance of cleanliness for everybody involved in the process. And, and to add on to that, um, both the, um, the teat dip container itself, um, in small herds, the spray can is popular of a chlorhexidine-based product and one that may not have the entire spectrum that you're looking for in terms of pseudomonas and so on. But those, um, the nozzle, if left sitting in the barn, often become a really heavy source of contamination. And, um, and I have seen on multiple occasions where we believe that was a likely source of a problem. And, um, and then again, that just um, the, the, that the teat dip or a teat sealant or whatever product you're using that you don't want that to become incubation broth for your, those, that those, um, many of those can be neutralized with organic material. And also that the, it's not just the product, but the contact time with the product, as Rosie mentions, contact time is really essential. Yeah, that's a good point. And even just making sure that those dip cups get emptied and cleaned daily is, um, I think most, uh, that might be something that gets overlooked the most um, as far as cleanliness goes. We, we really shouldn't be leaving those full in between milkings and letting them sit in the parlor. Um, we really need to spend a little extra to refill the cup after every or before every milking um, and making sure that we're cleaning it daily as well. And stuff a paper towel in the opening. Oh, that's a good, good pro tip. So I think this is a good part, a good point to start talking a little bit more about the project that Dr. Bush and I are collaborating on um, with uh, evaluating um, tissue and milk residues um, for these two intramammary antimicrobial products. Um, and that was the cefepirin um, and the cloxacillin um, dry, dry tubes, not the lactating tubes. Um, of course, Dr. Bush and I are uh, kind of right in the middle of the final phase of the project where we're um, evaluating the efficacy of these treatments on um, a targeted type of program. So we're not blanket treating. We're, we're just targeting animals that are positive for coagulase negative staphylococcus, so not staph aureus species. Um, and these are really, um, in our experience, the bacteria that are going to be most um, likely to be eliminated by uh, these antibiotics and can cause um, some subclinical mastitis issues that are going to affect our milk quality long-term um, into the next lactation. But um, we're also looking at antimicrobial resistance development um, with these types of treatments and um, basically long-term use of dry-off antimicrobial can affect antimicrobial resistance development. So, Dr. Bush, what do you think that this um, research project is going to mean for the dairy goat community? Yeah, I think, well, one, it's with herds that are using a dry period. Um, so that'll be something that, you know, if, if herds aren't using a 45 to 60 day dry period, the findings from this project may not necessarily apply. So, but so I think that might be the first take home is that we're looking at with at this with herds that have a dry period of 45 to 60 days. 
Um, so that may kind of already show a benefit to production and milk quality there. Um, and then I think it'll be really helpful to provide some goat specific evidence-based information on if there is a benefit to either current curable infections or preventing new infections within the dry period. Um, so I think it's really exciting because there is a cost to implementing this kind of strategy. I think it's really exciting to have data that we can at least as a starting point. And even with the antibiotic resistance data, we're just looking at those two time points of bacteria. Um, so, you know, even if we do see a change in antibiotic resistance, we're not looking at how persistent that might be in that bacterial population. But if there is a change, then this is a starting point to see, okay, now next step would be how long does this antibiotic resistance last within this other bacterial population? Um, and then, you know, I feel like most research just leads to more questions. And we already have so many questions, but it's, it's really exciting to take this first step and then see where we can go from here. Absolutely. I'm just so excited to have some goat-specific data um, because we've talked a lot today about anecdotal information and stuff we, we've heard from other veterinarians or dairy goat producers, but to really have um, some documented data from different farms in different states that have different management styles, I think is going to be so insightful. And like you said, it's a great starting point for just learning more about how goats um, – are, are different from cows and what strategies we can utilize to um, keep their udders healthy during the dry period. Do you have anything to add, Dr. Rao? Well, I actually, I had questions, of course. And uh, so it's really exciting work. And so I'm really pleased that you all are taking this on and, and that it's regionally uh, across several regions. Um, my question was, what the common, if you were able to tell us what the common organisms are that you're seeing most frequently? Um, well, in the dairy that we're working on in Wisconsin, far and away, we're seeing the coag negative staphs. Um, I think I could count on two hands the number of other organisms. I think the second most common would be staph aureus, but um, I've only had a handful of those. And then um, just a couple of other, you know, random things here and there. Um, pretty minimal contamination, too. We're, we're getting pretty clear cultures on every animal that we are sampling. Unlike bovine studies I've done where there's a lot of contamination, I think that's because the fecal matter is a different consistency. But um, we've, we've been able to get cultures on, um, I think we finished up with about... Uh, 700 animals that were actually cultured. Um, and then out of those, um, we've only selected for the ones that were um, positive for the quag negative staffs. And we had about a 40% prevalence of those out of all the animals that were cultured. So, And we're just getting started in California. And, you know, as we, you talked about earlier on, I think it's probably good to bring up again, is there's a lot of animal identification and record keeping and management changes that need to happen to facilitate this type of management change. And so we're trying to make sure that we, when we start, we really have those understood and, you know, working well. Um, so that we can do this because we don't have necessarily a really reliable withdrawal period for these in goats. So we're testing before going back into the bulk tank 
um, with a charm test. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's, there, you know, potentially there's a cost, a, a pretty important cost to consider associated with these types of strategies. Um, but if there is a benefit, it's, I think it's exciting that there, it shows another value for keeping animal identification, keeping those types of records, doing DHI testing. So yet another value um, in addition to the other types of management strategies that you guys talked about in your previous episode. And I believe, um, Dr. Bush, you sparked something um, in my memory. Dr. Rao, I'm sure you could comment on this, but there is a period after freshening, I think it's two or four milkings when um, does aren't supposed to, or animals aren't supposed to be milked into the bulk tank anyway. Um, and so the costs associated with the, you know, dumped milk from um, potential antimicrobial residue may actually kind of be negligible because those animals shouldn't be going in the bulk tank anyway. Um, but we are working on um, getting that data on the milk residue um, compiled so that we can send that over to FARAD, um, the Food Animal Residue Avoidance Database, so that they can determine um, the appropriate withdrawals, um, withdrawal recommendations, and then those can be disseminated out to veterinarians and producers. Yeah, and just because it's not labeled for goats, they tend to do a pretty extended withdrawal. Um, and so hopefully with this kind of data, we can approach getting that drug labeled for goats so that, the, you know, there would be a tolerance limit that would be similar to cattle. That would be great. <laughs> yeah, just for clarification. So I think that this research will be wonderful because you will establish some um, residue data. And then that data as part of not, um, not necessarily a, a clearance study, but rather because it will be some clinical data relative to um, the persistence of residues, then that will be used along with other, other literature reviews in formulating best recommendations um, for uh, veterinarians then who submit requests to the Food Animal Residue Avoidance Database to um, have a best practice for hoping to achieve a zero um, uh, as Rosie mentioned, because there's zero tolerance, then 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 the veterinarians then can uh, will assign to the herd then um, a withdrawal time. So unfortunately, it'll take additional studies to have a labeled withdrawal time. But then, but that database then will be helpful in in um, for for Farad to help to help um, advise veterinarians on appropriate withdrawals. Just wanted a really general comment, kind of circling back to the big picture and overall information. And that was the uh, Dairy Goat Production Handbook that's distributed by Langston University. The first two chapters are from uh, Paul Plummer, a chapter on biosecurity, and Chris Dumler, a chapter on herd health that are a really quick reference that um, give producers, and hopefully you all have this anyway, because it's a great encyclopedia of topics of dairy goat information, and that, um, that those are a really good quick reference for an overview of some of the things that we've talked about today. Absolutely. And I'm always on the hunt for good resources to refer clients to. 
I think this has been a really great discussion on um, setting does up for success and managing other health during the dry period. So I want to thank you both so much for making the time to pop on and chat with us today. And um, Dr. Bush and I are excited to be wrapping up this extensive research project that we've been working on and, and we'll be getting those results out soon, hopefully. Um, and um, Dr. Rao, as always, we appreciate your expertise and congratulations again on your retirement and emeritus status. Thank you guys so much for joining us today.